Thank you very much, Steve, and all of you for uh, sharing in this time that we've had together this week. I can't thank you enough for the hospitality and the wonderful way in which you've uh, received us. I have said several times how much we feel at home here, how much uh, we really are at home in lots of ways. Uh, my dad, of course, uh, preached with this same congregation located over in another place, and uh, Linda grew up in this church, of course, and so it's always a joy to come back, and we always jump at the opportunities to be with you whenever uh, they're offered. So it's so good to be here, and we want you to all know how much we love you and uh, care about you and how much we watch this congregation and its uh, growth and its development. And uh, uh, particularly, I think, since one of our brothers is one of the good elders of this church. So it's a great honor to have been with you this week. And uh, I, I tell you what, I, uh, I love all of you uh, ladies who cook for us. I will probably hate you next week when Linda puts me on a diet. I'm not able to eat anything. But uh, I love you this week. You've been wonderful. Well, let's look at some scripture and some ideas again tonight about uh, the design of this universe and the design of me. We're going to talk about that for a little while. A couple of passages, as we've tried to do each time to set the stage for what we are saying. These tonight are from the Psalms, one in Psalm 8, which says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That, of course, affirms not only that God created man, but it affirms the role that God has given man in this universe. And actually harks back to Genesis chapter 1 where God said, let us make man in our image. And where he said that man should rule over all the other parts of the world created by God. And so God reaffirms that through David in this wonderful psalm. And then there is the psalm I uh, thought we would come back to our memory verse, which I hope all of you are uh, using and learning and memorizing with all of our children. It's verse 14, of course. The text begins in, in 13 in Psalm 139. And incidentally, Psalm 139 is one you especially want to mark in your Bible. 
Because it speaks to the omniscience of God. It speaks to the omnipotence of God. It speaks to the omnipresence of God. Every section of the psalm deals with another aspect of the character, the power, the nature of God Almighty. And uh, it reaffirms all of this that we're saying about creation. So I, I think you want to mark Psalm 139, it is one of my very favorite psalms for doctrinal truth and particularly about knowing God and understanding his nature and character. But he says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. We're going to talk about that a little bit this evening. You formed my inward parts. I will praise you. Would you like to say it? I will praise you, for I am fearfully. Marvelous are your works. All right. Don't embarrass the preacher now when the kids come in here after a while. My frame was not hidden from you, he says. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That is prophetic. Skillfully wrought, made in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet. There were none of them. So God created man, formed us in our mother's womb, formed us before it was apparent that we were even being formed, as if we were hidden within our mothers. Does that speak to abortion to you? Does that say something? about the nature of the human being before he is ever even known to be there. It does to me. And every other statement of that same kind speaks to that same point. I'm not here this week to talk about some of those other social issues. I do not certainly consider abortion a medical issue. Abortion is an ethical, moral issue. And so I, I would take my stand there any day. Uh, you may learn some other things about me while we're together talking. All right, I'd like to give us a little background, if I may, uh, this evening. Uh, to our study. In 1993, Philip Johnson, who is a professor of law at the University of California in Berkeley, convened a group of scientists and philosophers from across the world at Pajero Dunes, California, to discuss the evidence of recent science as it relates to what he called the mystery of life's origin. Ultimately, their discussion turned to a question of whether life came about by chance 
and necessity? Or did it result from intelligent design or cause? Was there purpose? Was there plan? Was there design due to intelligent causation to the origins of the world with particular emphasis on man and human beings? Where did I come from? He invited scholars, scientists, an array of professors with unquestioned academic credentials from around the world who had done major work involved with the origins of life. He invited people from the great universities of our country, the University of Pennsylvania, Stanford University, the University of Chicago, Northwestern, Notre Dame. He invited uh, a person from Cambridge. He invited someone from the National Science Foundation. He, he invited someone from the National Institute of Health. I'm talking about actual attendees now. These actually came. The ones I'm talking about were there and were involved in the studies. He invited somebody from NASA on the geology and the astronomy and astrology. The questions uh, were basically these on that occasion. How can natural processes have assembled the intricate structures found in living human cells? In light of recent biochemical findings, can chemical change account for life on Earth? particularly human life. And the last question was, should we seek new approaches to our teaching concerning the origin of genetic coding in living organisms and how they came to be? We introduced this topic the other night when we spoke a little bit at the end of our study on Monday night about DNA and RNA and the genetic coding within every individual. And I'm here tonight to tell you that there is some good news out there because there are credible scientists, particularly some of the younger scientists, with a rising awareness that evolution is not good science not when they purport to follow the evidence, relying on the empirical verification of their conclusions. And it is increasingly evident that the evidence is mercilessly denying randomness, which I'll come back to in a moment. That was Darwin's idea of random selection as an explanation for the elegant designs that are embodied in the machinery of cells, human cells particularly. The rebuttals to Darwinism are coming these days from virtually every field of science, paleontology, chemistry, physics, 
microbiology, biochemistry, all of these areas. You see, in the last 50 years, we have learned more about nature than since the beginning of time before. Darwin wrote Origin of the Species in 1859. He made his trip to the Galapagos Islands in 1831. We've already said that. It's almost 150 years ago now. And lots has been learned since then. Darwin did not have the science behind him that we have today. The basis of Darwin's theory is this. Now listen carefully that nature presents variety, then nature selects from that variety the parts that can survive the best. Survival of the fittest. You've heard that phrase. These are the ones which can bring forth the next generation with improvements in them. And over long periods of time, he says, lots of those improvements make a new kind. Now, Darwin said in The Origin of the Species, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. That's in quotes. I've got it on the screen. It is on the screen. Natural selection that he talked about can explain some processes in nature on a small scale. But the question is, does that speak to the origin of those species? That's the question, you see. We'll come to that. There is a difference, you see, in saying that finches which have longer beaks are able to reach down into the rocky ground and get food, where those with shorter beaks can't get into those cracks and get those seeds. And in saying this is how a finch came about originally. And that's what we're talking about. The more we know about organisms and life, the more problems Darwinism has. The more obvious it is, to me at least, that his conclusions were flawed because of a lack of knowledge, primarily. Knowledge of the cell exploded in the 1950s. And it began to be known that the cell was not just a blob of plasma. A thimble full of cultured liquid can contain more than 4 billion single-cell bacteria. Each of those bacteria is packed with circuits, assembly instructions, and miniature machines. 
the complexity of which Darwin could never have imagined. Now, I mentioned these machines a minute ago. Cells are complex machines, like this on the screen. These are drawings, obviously. But these machines hold and carry and transfer more data than any computer on this earth. Cell functions are controlled by these many machines within your cells. They're called bacterial flagellum. They are like an outboard motor. No chance assembly of these parts, multiple parts, all necessary to function. What we're saying about that is that each of these flagellum contains more than 40 parts. Every part is necessary for this tiny mechanism to penetrate the bacterium's protective outer membrane. It is every part is necessary. Every part must be there for the bacteria to function. Without any part of it, it won't function. Now remember, Darwin says that all of this arises, the changes arise in minuscule additions or minuscule changes within the organism. Remember what we just said now. Every part has to be there. You don't start with one part and have life. Let me talk to you about that for just a moment. Michael Behe is a biochemist. He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you may have read it. In that book, he talks about what he calls irreducible complexity. In cells, there are multiple parts. All the parts are necessary for the cell to live, much less to function. You remove one part and you lose the function of the whole thing. That's irreducible complexity. Now, the way Behe uh, illustrated that was with a, a mousetrap. Anybody here seen this? Good. Several of you have seen this uh, mousetrap. Mousetrap has five basic components. It has a platform on which is a hammer that is caused to move over the mouse's head, hopefully, or neck, by a spring. There is a, a bar 
that holds that hammer down and to catch that sets the spring. Take away any one part of that mousetrap and the mousetrap won't work. You take away the hammer, it won't work. You take away the spring, it won't kill a mouse. It won't catch a mouse. You take away the platform and you can't operate it. You've got all of these parts. They must be there for it to function. The mousetrap will not function without all the parts. Now, this principle, modern chemistry is demonstrating to us, applies to biological machines. There are 40 protein parts necessary to the function of the bacterial flagella. If any one of those 40 parts is missing, it cannot live. It will die. It will not function. It could not have evolved in stages. All the parts had to be there to live. You could not have one of those parts come into being after the other parts because it would have nothing to attach to that was living. That's the point. Darwin could not have an idea about that. How could you build this bacteria gradually when no function till all of it's in place? To me, this is devastating to Darwinism. And this relates to all life, actually. Because all life is made up of these uh, cells. You can uh, see from this all the many parts uh, that are added. This is a computer model of a functioning ribosome, one of the parts of the cell. Now, Darwin said in Origin of the Species, on page 219, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, that's an organ in the body, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. He admitted that. Now scientists have found many organs like that. Each of them operated by these cells that we have been talking about. Now, can you think of a complex organ that could not possibly be formed by numerous successive slight modifications 
Well, let's just take one. We'll look at the eye for a few minutes. And it is interesting because Darwin himself said, and this is on page 217, apparently coming within the scope of the same discussion where our quote just came from a minute ago. To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberrations, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Well, he was right. Your eye adjusts its focus, he was saying. Your eye adjusts for the light coming in. Your eye automatically fixes aberrations out here that are caused. You know, you know when you're going across a desert and the, and the heat waves are up and all of this, and your eye adjusts to match what you're seeing. So on the next page, Darwin tried to explain why. He didn't worry about the eye too much. He said, first, the eye was simple when it was first made and not as complex as what we have today. He said, there are creatures which have a photosensitive spot only, so that is the original eye, and all the other eyes came from that. Now, what about that? Well, in the last 50 years, since about 1950, somewhere in the 1950s, beginning, we have learned how the eye functions at the chemical level. We call it the chemi chemistry of vision. The retina is where the light is received and the signal is sent to the brain. The neural layer of the human retina is made up of individual rods and cones which make up the retina. And those rods are composed of neurons which can be observed now with our microscopes. Darwin knew nothing about any of them. But the interesting part of all of that is that all those parts must be there functioning together for the eye to work at all. So this could not have arisen one part at a time because one part won't do it. Now it's even more complex than that. All the microscopic 
elements, we now know the membranes operate by this chemistry of vision. The chemistry had to work in the simplest photoreceptor, the same chemical component, had to work in that simple eye of those simpler organisms, chemically, that work within ours. The photoreceptor has the same chemistry. Could not have developed because it had to be there at all levels in the eyes for it to work. In Darwin's Black Box, which he wrote, he said the chemical elements must work. Change in shape of molecule changes the protein, and then that changes the chemistry. There is an ion chain. All this together determines if you can see or not. The charges and the currents from these go to the brain. And if all of this is not in the cell at once, you do not see. You are blind. Now, Darwin didn't know all of that. I didn't know all that till about two months ago, as Edwin says, said a while ago, about the eye. But that is what modern science is finding. There's also a set of enzymes. They start reproducing the elements and the system in order for it to balance itself. And I won't bore you with the chemical terms or go through this chart with you. I'll just show you this chart. And in some of your uh, anatomy classes, you might see some of this, young people, as you move on through school. Any level of sight requires all of this. All of this. All of this design. All of these parts. Now, to say that just happened, they just accidentally all came together. And they are all accidentally improving all the time. It's just totally absurd. With me, If you take one piece out of this, one of these micro-microscopic parts, none of it will work. This had to be designed. And we have not talked about the conscious effect neurologically. See, we haven't even gotten to that yet of how this is all transmitted within the body to the brain and interpreted there and sent back down through the senses of modern man. We haven't even talked about that yet. 
In fact, we haven't talked about a lot of things that uh, Edwin or Wiley or whoever sent the topics to me uh, might have looked at in, in this study. Uh, my daughter asked me uh, on the way over here tonight, said, you're not going to show any embarrassing pictures of the human body tonight, are you? Uh, we could talk about the digestive system. We could talk about the reproductive system. We could talk about the immune system. We could talk about the nervous system. We could talk about the neurological system. Memory in a human being and how that works, you see. We could talk about the biochemistry of blood clotting. You know, we talked about water a little bit, and I didn't have any time last night to really discuss what we started and shouldn't have even started talking about water and its impact on our lives. Healing. I mean natural healing. When you uh, skin your knee. Or hurt yourself. We haven't given it much thought. We take it for granted. How does your blood know how to clot at the right time? And not too much. Or not too little. Because if it does, that can kill you. You can clot to death. Blood clots give heart attacks and strokes. Or you cannot clot. Hemophiliacs don't clot. You see, our system ordinarily works properly. And where it is really working is at the chemical level in your cells. These are the intrinsic pathway and the extrinsic pathway for all of these systems that we were talking about, blood clotting, reproduction, immunity, nervous condition of the body, neurological condition. All of that is controlled within these cells. And remember what we said the other night about the DNA within each of these cells that makes all of us unique as individuals. And all of that is controlled with starting places and stopping places in the RNA chain. All of that in every individual, millions and millions of cells reproducing, but reproducing just right for your body. That just happened? That's an accident. We're here because we just kind of evolved that way. Now I want to ask you, what is more reasonable to you? To believe that some powerful being designed that? Or that that just happened? Well, you're going to have to make up your mind about that. Every individual has to decide if he's going to live by faith or not. 
whether he believes in God or does not. And I'm saying to you again, if you believe there is no God, not only are you denying the evidence of the makeup of your own body, but you have no place to go. And you have no hope. And there is nothing to you to guide or control your actions other than the force of the law in the society in which you live. And that's it. And there is no purpose for your existence. And you are nothing more than a blob of this protoplasm that you seem to believe in so much. Let's go back for just a moment. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him. You have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen to that. And God bless all of you that believe that.